I hope you had a chance to pick up a copy of the playbill for today. Obviously, we are thinking about Job in the way that we would think about drama, theater. We have permission from the Playbill Corporation to use their artwork, uh, these graphics. They give it to nonprofit organizations who typically do put on a theater production and they want to spread their, their message this way. And so we have accepted their offer of using them and then have adapted everything on the inside and on the back. The back is meant for you to have a continuing conversation, if you wish to, with your friends, with maybe your Sunday school class, with your neighbor, about the nature of the book of Job. I think we're living in an age in which Job makes more sense, as time has become very difficult in this country, in our world, maybe in your world. So we're jumping around from place to place in the book of Job, and here we are in Job 23, right here. I'm not letting up. I'm standing my ground. My complaint is legitimate. God has no right to treat me like this. It isn't fair. If I knew where on earth to find him, I'd go straight to him. I'd lay my case before him face to face, Give him all my arguments firsthand. I'd find out exactly what he's thinking and discover what's going on in his head. Do you think he would dismiss me or bully me? No. He'd take me seriously. He'd see a straight living man standing before him. My judge would acquit me for good for, of all charges. I travel east looking for him and I find no one then west, and not a trace. I go north, but he's hidden his tracks, then south, but not even a glimpse. But he is singular and sovereign. Who can argue with him? He does what he wants, when he wants to. He'll complete in detail what he's decided about me and whatever else he determines to do. Is it any wonder that I dread meeting him? Whenever I think about it, I get scared all over again. God makes my heart sink. God Almighty gives me the shudders. I'm completely in the dark. I can't see my hand in front of my face. Maybe you felt that way before, certain circumstances in your life. In the drama of Job's life, the disasters of Job's downfall are told with startling speed. In no time at all, he is stripped of his fortune and all of his possessions. The lives of his children are snuffed out by a, a raging desert wind that flattens his house on top of them. All his sheep and goats, the visible signs of his vast wealth, are destroyed. His friends desert him, and even his wife turns on him in disgust. In essence, he loses everything that helped give his life meaning. You know, we have a saying, we're fond of saying this, that for every crime there is a punishment. In Job's case, we have the punishment, but where is the crime? Job has done nothing, and yet the world has turned on him. Most of us have been raised to think that when we do something good, we will get praised for it. We will get rewarded. And conversely, 
that's a mistake we, we come across because Job is exemplary in his conduct. He does it all right, and yet life doles out one punitive event after another. A whole series of things that we can hardly catalog, much less comprehend. He had it all, and all his life came tumbling down around him, and he uttered not a word. He's not every man in this story. I once thought that, that all of us have the capacity to live the life of Job. In this case, he's Superman. He's extraordinary in his ability to handle things. This is not about controlling ourselves in the face of calamities. It's not about maintaining control. This is not one of those lessons. The control of our emotions. It's not about putting a lid on the way in which we feel. That's not what this story is about. Job is about the fiercest freedom to ask anything he wishes of God. It is startling how honest Job is with God. Scholars are split on the construction of Job. You know, if you, if you read it all the way through, what you realize is at the beginning at the, and the end is prose. It is story. There are things that are happening. And then in this long stretch in the middle, it's poetry. Everything is written in a poetic verse, in a, in a voice of the poet. And the scholars are split. Did it start as the poetry first and then someone came later and added the prologue and the epilogue? Or was it the other way around? Did, did the poet come in and insert this long piece of poetry, this dialogue that goes on between Job and his friends and Job and God? Did, did some, the poet come in and insert between the beginning and the ending? Scholars are a little split over this. Old Testament scholar Carla Sumala compares this long stretch of Job to flyover territory. You know what flyover territory is. That's us here in Jefferson City. As the plane leaves from Chicago and goes to Phoenix, we're the middle ground. It's, it, the, no planes are landing here, No, don't you know? They're going from Chicago to Phoenix, and we're that flyover territory that you can see from the plane, and that's us here in the Midwest. Between the bookends, this poetry shows up. In between the prose, the squishy middle of Job is absolutely contrary to what we want. We want story. We want plot. We want action. We want reaction. We want things to happen. And so here come the poets. Unwelcomed, moralistic speeches. Don't you just hate somebody moralizing with you about something that you've done? Uh, I get that every now and then. I'm a second child. I'm very accustomed to that, don't you know? And so here, here these speeches come along. This morality uh, speech comes along. And it is the way in which the issues of Job and God are worked out. They're stimulated and prompted by the friends, the so-called friends. Aristotle defined a good story as having a beginning, a middle, and an end. A good joke might have that. A good story about what you did on your vacation might have a beginning, a middle, and an end. We construct narratives. 
That's what we do. We take life's events and we build memory and those memories are edited. We edit our memories because we don't really remember things exactly the way that they happened. We remember them to fit our narrative. And so here this story is, this beginning, a middle, and an end. This is what we do when we give advice. We would do better to join Job sitting in the dirt, living with him in his pain, sharing his despair. You know, there's an old saying, don't just sit there, do something. Most of us are fixers in life, and we take that up, and we try to fix the things around us. We want to be helpful to our friends. So maybe we need to flip that saying over. Don't just do something. Sit there. Sit with your friends who are suffering. Sit with them as they go through these speed bumps in life. Two things have happened uh, to Job since last week and this week. Thank you, Melissa, for tipping over the first domino in this story. First, we find that he has, he has friends. He has these friends. Job's friends. This is the way that we talk about Job's friends. We talk about them in a, a clump, a, a, a gathering together of these kinds of friends. Have you encountered any of them? In the New Testament, there's a lovely saying about your ox falling into a ditch. I, I just love that. I, it's agrarian, and, it, and it's about the way that they lived. And when your ox falls in a ditch, you've got a real problem. And so what do you do when one of your friends comes along and gives you advice about that? Unwelcomed, unneeded. Usually the advice is something that anybody, I almost said any moron, anybody could think up it's the obvious they would say there's so much loss in this story and there's so much that happens in such an, a really crazy short period of time these things all happen in a row in Job's life and here he is he's grieving he's sitting on the in the ashes he doesn't know quite what to do and then the friends of Job get restless. They, like us, believe that life should be just. It should be fair. It should operate on a sort of an if-then principle. In our presumptive ideal world, bad things do not happen to good people. That's the way we think. If you do good, if you make as many good decisions in a row as possible, good things will happen to you. The only explanation for the calamities that have befallen him are, it's not his fault. That goes contrary to what we think. They're, they, that they are his fault. They, these are the, this is the way the world was thinking. We know about those thoughts and feelings, don't we? Uh, what, have you ever heard about a teenager's bad behavior and thought, grrr, those parents... Blaming those parents. It might be in your own family that that thought goes on. Or that wouldn't have happened to her if she had dressed decently. Or it wouldn't have happened to him if he had not wandered off into the wrong neighborhood. It's funny how we assign blame to certain things that happen in life. 
And that's the second thing that has happened between the readings for this flyover part of the country, of the, of the story. Job speaks of his anguish and frustration with honesty directly to God in a way that is challenging to those of us who are introverted or shy or have a poor self-esteem. How would I ever mount the energy to confront God like this? His so-called friends, he describes them as miserable comforters with windy words. But God, God he wants to hear from. He wants God to react to him. He wants God to answer him. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem, to, seem good to you to oppress? Do you see as humans see? You know that I am not guilty, and yet you turn and destroy me. The big question in Job is, where is God? And so we get this awful sense of silence in the midst of his great need to have conversation with the Creator, with the divine God, this great need to, to air this issue out with God. And God responds, not. There is no answer for the longest time. He wants to know, and in crying out for an answer, he echoes the long biblical tradition called lament. There is a wonderful uh, study to be had if you're willing to do the research on what a lament is all about. And it's all over the Bible. There are places because it's such, so significantly honest about what's going on in life. To come to the place where you just have, you just have sorrow and grief over something that has happened. It's that real. The lament is the way in which we uh, air these things out with God. That we take God up on the freedom that God gives us to be truly honest with God. Job cannot find or see or hear God, but he remains undeterred. What is the great grace, the great gift of God reflected in Job's words? That he longs for God. What a powerful spirituality that in the midst of this darkness and all these tragedies in his life, he still longs for God. And the silence of God, it's very, very silent indeed. It's difficult for us to interpret. We like, we like a response. We like an answer. We like an immediacy of an answer. We are people of story, of narrative, of proclamation, of conversation. We like the give and take, even if it's utterly honest, even if it's provocative, even if it's in anger. As long as it's an honest conversation, it's worth having. And so we have this story of utter honesty. Elie Wiesel once described Job as our colleague. I like that that we ha have an, affin an affinity with Job because of who he is. He models for us this ability to communicate with God. Many of the voices that we hear in the Psalms, the songbook and the prayer book of the Jewish people are particularly 
in the specific psalms of lament. If you go looking for them, you'll find them. They're not the sweet ones that we say to one another very often. The lament is so utterly honest and so significant. And there's even a book in the Old Testament entitled Lamentations. This is about the nation itself that has gone through such a difficult, harsh time. And this is the writing that pours out of their souls in the midst of all of these losses. Other laments are heard in the voices of the prophets. The prophets know all about laments. And the words of Jesus himself as he died on the cross, crying out in agony, quoting uh, the first verse of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Get it? The laments are the language of pain and sorrow. It is the imagery that we can adopt in our own story to describe what we're truly feeling, not the, you know, the glossed over happy face that we put on, but to actually live in our sorrow and our grief. Where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? At the end of the lament, when the words and the music have stilled themselves, and the one suffering from the silence and despair of God's empty absence, there yet remains a slender thread of hope. Uh, I've done some study in narrative psychology, and one of the things that they, they cling to in the hearing of stories and therapy is the, this thread of hope. Uh, trying to always hear where the hope lies in these stories. And part of therapy is to, to name those, the hopefulness, the spirit of hopefulness. And for the client to be able to seek out their own hope. Job found this hope by dwelling in the depths of despair where he turned to God. In that emptiness he clung to a thread of hope. And he proclaimed, we could sing this, but we won't. I won't sing it, thank you. I know my Redeemer lives. Ever heard that song? It comes from Job. I know my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has thus been destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see on my side and my eyes shall behold and not another. The thread of hope in the midst of all of this lamentation, all of this despair, to find the thread of hope is the challenge of Job. You're free to use the playbill as you wish. I'm grateful that we have a tool like that that we can use in the people of God, that we can study as well as preach and worship. Amen.